The text for my sermon is found in the 10th chapter of Luke. I'm beginning with the 25th verse, where Luke tells us, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What is your understanding of it? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, needing to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus responded and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And the lawyer said, He who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. When I was a boy, many of the lessons of life were passed from one generation to the next in the, short, in the form of short, pithy sayings. I remember growing up and hearing my elders say such things as a stitch in time saves nine, a rolling stone gathers no moss, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride, the devil finds work for idle hands, anything worth doing is worth doing well, and a penny saved is a penny earned. Reading a compilation of some of these perhaps simplistic proverbs would provide an excellent insight into the values of America in that time that was a prelude to the tumultuous 60s. And it would give young people an understanding of the nostalgia that we who lived in those times have for those times. One of those brief proverbs was, a friend in need is a friend indeed. My sermon this morning is about a man who proved to be a friend indeed. It's an evidence of the penetrating influence of the Christian religion in our nation's thought and life that most Americans recognize the phrase, Good Samaritan. Many RVers belong to the Good Sam Club, This is an organization of campers intended to provide fellowship and assistance, one camper to another. Many states have statutes that are called Good Samaritan Laws, 
And these are written to protect doctors and nurses and anyone else that might stop at the scene of an accident to help someone who is injured. But it's an evidence of America's drifting away from her spiritual roots that most Americans are totally unaware that the Good Samaritan was a moral hero of a story told by our Lord Jesus Christ. This story is found only in the Gospel of Luke. And while there's some question about whether the Lord was referring to a real event involving real people or inventing a character to make a point, it really doesn't matter whether this man is real or a figment of our Lord's holy imagination. The main point is the main point of the story. We're not told where this conversation took place. But when we read on in the Gospel of Luke, the event that takes place immediately afterward occurs in the home of Martha and Mary, who lived in Bethany, which was virtually a suburb of the city of Jerusalem. And so we might reasonably assume that this exchange between Jesus and this lawyer occurred somewhere in that region, perhaps even close to the temple itself. The unidentified man whose questions triggered Christ's parable, Luke calls a lawyer. A lawyer is a student of law, perhaps even a practitioner or a teacher of the law. And the law, in this case, would have been the scriptures of what you and I call the Old Testament, and especially the five first books of the Old Testament that contain in concentrated form that law that God gave to his people Israel. Elsewhere, these students and teachers of the law are called scribes. And because the scribes are often allied with the Pharisees and their opposition to Christ, it's easy to assume that this particular lawyer was also hostile to Christ. But that wouldn't be fair to him or to the reason for his question. Justice requires that we give him the benefit of the doubt and consider at least the possibility that he was genuine and sincere in his approach to Jesus. Luke tells us that he stood up to ask his question. That means that before he stood up, he wasn't standing up. He was sitting. And we know from several passages in the scriptures that the custom at the time was for those who taught to sit and for their students or their disciples to stand near them. It's not unreasonable to assume that this man was a teacher of the law and that he was actually engaged in teaching when he noticed Jesus coming near. This would mean, then, that he was surrounded by people who respected him, trusted him, and looked to him for the answers to their religious questions. And for him to stand respectfully before Christ, assuming for himself the posture of a student, and in the presence of those who looked up to him, suggests at least the possibility that his question was not a challenge, but a sincere desire to hear what the Lord had to say about this matter that was on his mind. We have to consider that this expert in the law was a man who was truly hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and not like many of the other scribes and the Pharisees of Israel at the time. That in fact, he may have been a man like Martin Luther, a 
expert in the scriptures, a teacher of the scriptures who discovered that his growing knowledge of the law and the holiness of God only tormented his troubled conscience more and more. He stood before the Lord. He called him teacher. This respectful posture and this respectful address create at least the reasonable suspicion that this man was one whose name was already written in the book of life. But, someone might argue, the gospel also tells us that asking this question, he was testing Christ. Doesn't this number him among the hypocrites who dogged the Lord's steps from the very beginning of his public life? And that certainly is a possibility. But there's another very reasonable possibility as well. When one expert or teacher meets another, it's natural for the one to test the knowledge and the wisdom of that person to determine whether that person has anything of substance and meaning to add to his own understanding of their common interest. It would be natural and necessary for him to try to determine the depth of the Lord's knowledge and the quality of his wisdom before investing confidence in his answers to his question. But again, the value of the passage isn't affected by any position that we might take about the heart or the motives of this man. The value of this exchange transcends our view of the man's character. We notice that whatever the condition of his heart or the nature of his motives, the question that he asked is the single most important question of life. He asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What can I do to know that I am right with God, that my sins are forgiven, and that when I die, my soul will rise and be forever in his presence? Far too few people ask this question in our time. Too many live from day to day, each day drawing one day closer to the end of those days, borne along by the naive assumption that everyone inherits eternal life. At least this lawyer had the good sense to ask a question of great substance. And I trust that your presence in this place of Christian worship means that you've wrestled with this question and that you found Christ's answer to this question. He asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? For those of us who spent our formative religious years in fundamental or evangelical churches, Jesus' answer is a major surprise and a real disappointment to us. He didn't whip a copy of the four spiritual laws out of his shirt pocket and urge the lawyer to read it at his earliest convenience. He didn't tell the man to get on his knees and repeat the sinner's prayer after him. He said nothing about being born again, about becoming a member of the church, about being baptized. Instead, he said, what is written in the scriptures? How do you understand them? Here and elsewhere, we remember, we're reminded of the very high view that Jesus held of the scriptures. He said, don't think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot nor one tittle shall pass from the law until it is all fulfilled. He said, heaven and earth will pass away but my words 
will never fail. And in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, in response to the request of the rich man who had died, that Abraham might send Lazarus back to witness to his family on earth, Jesus had Abraham say, they have the law and the prophets. Let them hear them. If they refuse to hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, even though one rise from the dead. According to Jesus Christ, the answers to all of the great questions of life are found, not in our feelings or intuitions, not in our bull sessions or traditions, but on the pages of God's holy word. The man asked about what we commonly call salvation. It's instructive for us to notice that the one we call Lord didn't reduce being saved to being a transaction like that when one buys a refrigerator. His answer was not institutional or sacramental. He didn't advise the man to join a church or be baptized or take communion. In effect, he said, you have a question about life. Pay very careful attention to what the scriptures say. As he often did, the Lord answered the man's question with a question of his own. He asked him, what does the law say? From this lawyer's answer, it's obvious that he was a man not only of knowledge, but of wisdom as well. He recognized that many of the particular commandments of the law were not just things in themselves, but principles capable of broader application. For example, the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, becomes you will hold the institution of marriage in high honor. You shall not steal becomes you will assume responsibility for the integrity of your neighbor's property. And the greatest of these particular statutes become great principles are these. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And you will love your neighbor the same way that you love yourself. This man's mind was not focused narrowly on each jot and every tittle of the law, but on the sweeping themes those jots and tittles express. And even if the man was a fraud, a hypocrite, a determined enemy of Christ, we have something of great value to learn from his sense of how the Bible should be understood. Again, on its surface, the Lord's response is a disappointment. He said, you've answered rightly, do this and you will live. Next Sunday is Reformation Sunday. We'll be celebrating our heritage as Protestant Christians. We'll be remembering the Protestant Reformation, a great movement in the history of the church in which much of that church was brought back to the Bible. And one of the major results of the Reformation was the rediscovery of the doctrine that we are saved by faith and by faith alone and not by works. Jesus' statement do these things and you will live seems to imply that in his view, salvation is the result of good works, particularly those good works of keeping the law of God. But this becomes one of many examples of things we find in scripture that simply can't mean what they seem to mean at first reading, passages that require a deeper, broader understanding than the immediate. 
The words of Jesus simply can't mean that we're saved by works. We know this because so many other passages tell us plainly that eternal life begins to the, belongs to those who embrace Christ by faith and only on the grounds of that faith. We know this because if we can save ourselves by our works, then it wouldn't be necessary for Jesus to suffer and to die. We know this because the law itself never presents itself as a means to salvation. What we have to understand the Lord's words to mean is something like this. If you're the kind of person who truly loves the God who reveals himself to us on the pages of the Bible, and if you genuinely love others in the same merciful, sympathetic, tolerant way that you love yourself, then you're a person in whose heart the Spirit of God is at work. And the presence of his spirit in you means that you already have the life about which you have inquired. This isn't an unjustified manipulation of the Lord's words, but rather an interpretation made necessary by an understanding of several very consistent themes of Scripture. Every part of the Bible needs to be understood in the light of our understanding of every other part of the Bible. This is a valid and a necessary principle of biblical interpretation. The lawyer responded to what Jesus said by asking a second question. Referring to this second of these great laws of the Old Testament, he said, Who is my neighbor? In the light of the humanism that dominates our culture, this question seems petty to the point of being argumentative. In the unanalytical age in which we live, the common view is that every person is my brother, all people are my neighbors, and for me to discriminate in any way is the ultimate sin. But in the light of the law of God, it was a very reasonable question. The law of which this man was a student makes a distinction between the two groups of people that occupied that land that we call holy. Pagans living among the Israelites are called in that law strangers and foreigners. While such words as brother and neighbor refer to us fellow Hebrew. And the law defines the obligation of a Jew to his neighbor as being slightly different and higher than his duties to a stranger. In Galatians 6.10, we find a very similar distinction made regarding our social responsibility as Christians. In that verse, Paul says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. In whatever spirit, this question was asked. The question is not irrelevant to Christians living in our time. And Jesus' answer to the man's second question was the parable of the Good Samaritan. The details of this story, I trust, are familiar and don't need to be rehearsed. The first of its, the characters that we meet is the unidentified victim, waylaid by bandits, stripped of everything of value, severely beaten for his resistance, and left near death. He was traveling along the road that ran from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It was the same road that our Lord took often in the course of his life. In fact, one day, not long after he told this story, 
It would be lined with people throwing their cloaks and palm fronds at the feet of the donkey that bore his weight and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Jericho Road was the I-75 or the I-69 of the day. Along that road came the man about to be attacked and robbed, and we assume that he was a Jewish man. In that cast of characters, we find a priest and a Levite. These were men of Israel highly respected because of their identification with that nation's religion. These were the men who loved to offer their elegantly written, well-rehearsed prayers in public to the applause of men. These were the men who fasted and advertised their devotion in their tortured visage. These men, widely esteemed for their ornate engagement in the rituals of the temple and for their profound speculations about the meaning of the law, are subtly scorned by Christ for the hypocrisy of their ways and for the hardness of their hearts. By ethnic definition, both a priest and a Levite would be Jews. The man in the ditch was their brother, he was their neighbor, and they ignored him. And of course, in that cast is the stranger from Samaria that we've come to call good. His selection was no accident. The Samaritans would be among those strangers and foreigners mentioned in the law. In John 4, we read of the arrogant attitude of Jews towards Samaritans and are told that they had no dealings with the Samaritans. It's of more than passing interest that the Lord made a man despised by the Jews, the moral hero of this story told to Jews. In great detail, the Lord describes the care that this kind Samaritan offered to this injured stranger. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds using wine and oil, medicinally, not sacramentally. He placed him on his own animal. He took him to an inn. He stayed as long as he could. He paid for the man's extended care and promised to return and reimburse the innkeeper for any additional expenses that he might incur. It's easy to imagine that having told this story to a people grown strangely quiet, Jesus paused to let the meaning of his words soak in. And then he said to the lawyer who had asked the original question, so which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among thieves. There are questions posed by Christ that to the thoughtful have only one possible answer. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And we in whose lives the Holy Spirit lives can only say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in the midst of a time when people are wandering away from him, Jesus said, will you go away also? And we whose hearts and minds and ears and eyes have been opened by the power of God can only say, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of everlasting life. And so it is here. Has he intended the only answers that given by the lawyer? The neighbor in the story was the one who showed mercy on the man in need. Before we meet again, in fact, perhaps even before the sun sets on this bright and beautiful day, 
it's not at all unlikely that you and I will come upon somebody in legitimate need. That person will probably not be lying near death alongside the road. He might be a neighbor that we know to be in real financial need. She might be an elderly driver driver stranded on the highway by a flat tire. It could be someone in desperate need of an encouraging word, a sympathetic shoulder, an attentive ear. It might be a visitor to the church, feeling lonely in a crowd. Or someone who would respond eagerly to the offer of a ride to that place where Christians gather to worship their God. With such people and with such needs in mind, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. And with such people and such needs in mind, he says to us today, Go and do likewise. Let us pray. Our Father, many of us can remember a time in life when your son Jesus came to us and found us wounded and beaten up and desolate. And he bound up our wounds. He embraced us. He placed repentance in our heart and faith in our minds and made us his own. And we live joyfully today because of his great friendship to us. We pray, our Father, that you would make us sensitive to the needs of others around us. Give us eyes that we might see, ears that we might hear, hands to help in order that ultimately your name might be lifted up and glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.